Hello and welcome to episode 1675 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Meg, we made it. We did it! Oh, we made it. 30 teams down or about to be down. This is our last season preview podcast. And isn't that fortuitous timing? Because this is about the last moment that we could have a season preview podcast without the season having started already. So we will get the Dodgers in today. The best projected team in baseball. We'll be talking to Pedro Mora of The Athletic about them. And then we will be talking to Joe Trezza of MLB.com about the lowly Baltimore Orioles. But they all deserve respect. We talk about all the teams, no matter how bad they are. You cannot say that we have ignored your team because we have spent the last several weeks talking about every single one of them. I have found it edifying in some ways and exhausting in other ways, and (laughs) that's always the way of it, but... I hope that people have enjoyed it and learned from it. Yeah, we are completists by nature. And also, mm-hmm. we uh, we want to thank all of the the many writers who took time with us yes. over the last couple of weeks to, you know, answer our questions and teach us about these rosters and uh, to all of our listeners for hanging hanging in. I know that, um, you know, when you're a fan of a particular team, the, the goings on of other teams are sometimes of varying degrees of interest to you. And so mm-hmm. we hope that um, even if, you know, you're saying, a, a, an Orioles fan or a Pirates fan or really any kind of fan that um, at least a couple of them were engaging and uh, that you enjoyed them. Yeah, I like to think that our listeners are fans of baseball as well as fans of a particular team. And uh, I hope <laughs> they have some tolerance for listening to the other 29 or else the last several weeks have been auto skips for everyone. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we always try to tie it back into larger trends and things that are going on in the game so that it's not just uh, endless questions about the 26th man on this team's roster, or that team's roster, unless it's the Twins and we're talking about Williams Estadio. So. Hopefully it's been enjoyable and uh, this is the ninth year in a row I think that it has been done on this podcast and every time it is a a deep sigh of relief when it is (laughs) done but by the time the next year rolls around I manage to forget just uh, how much of a marathon it is from a scheduling perspective. Not so easy to get 30 people who cover teams and are trying to break news and watch games and be at the ballpark not always easy. So yes, we do very much appreciate everyone who joined us. So before we get to our last previews, wanted to bring up the fact that we have a new ballpark name and a new entry into the annals of naming rights for MLB ballparks. And man, we've talked about some bad ones, mm-hmm. but I don't think that it has gotten this bad or has ever gotten this bad. Am I sleeping on some upside to Lone Depot Park, the next name of Marlins Park? I think that there's an argument to be made that guaranteed rate field is is similarly bad. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is probably not. Maybe it is not a coincidence that they are both mortgage companies. (laughs) There are so many mortgage companies. Yeah. Great many. Insurance, mortgage, big ballpark advertisers. Yeah, it probably says a lot about the target demo of baseball yes. that those those are thought to be such reliable stadium name. What is what am I trying to say? My brain is soup. It's a smoothie. <laughs> I think my brain is a smoothie and then I drank a smoothie and so then I thought to myself, am I drinking my You're brain? Drinking will, brain. It, will it grow back? <laughs> Truest Park? What is that? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, some kind of company that I have not really bothered it's to find out about. Mortgage company. <laughs> 
the point is we are going to use this as an opportunity to, to do a little spur of the moment draft. Didn't really do much prep for this. Not that this is a draft that we should do much prep for, but in recognition of Lone Depot Park joining the roster here, it's not just that it's Lone Depot Park, which how can you not be romantic about that name for a ballpark, but also it's lowercase, like canonically lowercase, like oh, the, really? the L. Yeah, I think it's so. It's not a like camel in, case word? I think in like the logos and everything, like the park is is just lowercase. Uh, it's the L is lowercase, the P in park is lowercase. I think the D in depot is uppercase. So it's just all kinds of confounding casing going on here that I'm not going to honor. I don't think if I ever have to to write these names, but Lone Depot Park. So we'll see where that goes. But we're going to do a draft of uh, all of the current corporate sponsorships on ballparks. And we've talked before about the fact that, you know, you don't have to observe them if you're used to calling a park something. You don't necessarily have to change. Like if you're, you know, the official team broadcaster, maybe you have to do it, but everyone else can kind of call it what you want to call it. But these names exist. They're out there. And so we're going to draft them here. So I guess this is, I don't know, I guess we're drafting like, from uh, most acceptable to to least acceptable, okay. like your top preference if your park had to be named one of these things, and uh, we'll go all the way down. So I believe there are 22. I believe that 22 out of the 30, now that Lone Depot Park has joined the ranks, have corporate sponsorships <laughs> currently. So I guess we're going 11 apiece here. And I sort of sprung this on you, so I'm happy to- I have done no prep. Give you the first pick here if you've got Oh, okay. I'm learning from Google that Truist is a bank. It is a finance finance company. So, you know, same general uh, area, but uh, to be specific. Uh, Mm -hmm. And sorry, can I just say, so every time I see a Loan Depot commercial, I mishear them and think they're saying Home Depot. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And I guess in a way they are a Home Depot, right? Yes. What is a mortgage but a way to own a home? But Uh I just, I would have, if I had been in that concept meeting, I would have said, hey, you know how our our company name sounds like Home Depot and that's going to confuse people? Kind of like, have you seen this, um, the the Udemy, like self-teaching, like internet learning module site that gets advertised on uh, Mm MLB TV? I hear you dummy every time. And I'm like, that seems (laughs) like a really bad way to start if you're trying to get an adult to learn a new skill. You should come up with a better name than that. Anyway, I'm stalling because I don't really have a good answer to this. Every time I watch MLB TV now, I hear you doing the generic rock riff that plays <laughs> 10 times in every commercial break. <laughs> Smoothie brain. Um, okay. Well, I guess with the first pick, I'm going to take... Oh, these are all so bad i'm gonna you know what i'm gonna shock the world given our um given our conversation about the the coliseum i'm gonna take ring central with the number one overall pick and here's why number one there's a there's a baseball interpretation of that name and i think that one thing that might set a, a tolerable none of them are good but a tolerable arena sponsorship 
for uh, distinguish it from a bad one is when you can like shoehorn kind of a baseball scenario into there. So it's like, oh, this is Ring Central. We're the we're the A's, and we play at <laughs> Ring Central. So now they have to go win a World Series because so otherwise, like, oh, I, I see. I didn't I didn't get it at first. So yeah, it, it only applies if they win a ring, which they they never really do these days. Yeah, but so. like you know, it's aspirational, kind of like having hmm. a mortgage if you're a millennial. So okay. um, you know, like it's 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 Ring Central. Coliseum, huh. where right. where gladiators play for rings. I don't know, man. These are all really bad. <laughs> <laughs> I was prepared to to call that a massive reach with the the number one overall pick, but I, I had not considered that interpretation. I'm still going to say it's a reach, but you That's can right. just call it the Coliseum, which we've discussed yeah, before. So also good. You can't just ignore the Ring Central. Right. So that's something it's got going for it. All right, I I think I'm going to go with course. For, okay. for number one, because A, it's it's been there from the start, so it, it doesn't feel like a corporate sponsorship almost. It's just like it's always been that, so it's not jarring. It's just so closely associated with it, and like it makes sense for Denver and Mile High and all of that, and it's just like a shorthand now, like Coors Field, a Coors Field game. We talked about that recently. Like Coors is just so closely associated with that park that if they started calling it like Rockies Field or something it that would be, would be weird. weird. Right. So, so I I like course and you know it's uh it's snappy. It's easy to say course field. I'm on board. Is it because also because you can hear Sam Elliott saying course the banquet bear? <laughs> it might be that too. Yeah, that's not a bad reason. That's a yeah. perfectly acceptable reason. Okay, um, well, gosh, I'm gonna go with. <sighs> You're all so bad. <laughs> You're agonizing over your second pick. We've got uh, oh, we got nine so many more to go. go. Okay, um, <laughs> I I'm gonna go. With, <laughs> I don't know what to pick, man. I'm gonna go with Target Field because yep, one, one of the th- one of the things I miss most about, I mean. I should say one of the few places I've gone with any regularity in the last 12 months has been Target, but I have, I miss the experience of wandering Target for an extended period of time and somehow spending $200 on stuff I didn't know I needed. So mm-hmm. because of what it evokes about uh, the, the pre-pandemic life, I look forward to returning to and picking Target Field. That's terrible. No, it's that was high good, on my list. That's, not a good that's on my board. I think that's a pretty good one. All right. I, I think I'll take City Field. Sure. I think I'll go with City Field just because, you know, it, it doesn't sound <laughs> so much like a, a corporate sponsorship. I'm all about the ones that like blend in where you can just, you know, forget that uh, it is some some corporation that paid money to have their name on there because, you know, it's a, it's a field in the city. It's City Field. It, yeah. It works. Yeah, that works. That's as, that's as good a, a reason as any. <laughs> I'm going to go with oracle park for that reason also Mm. which is that you can you can imagine it being about something else right it could be it can be mystical kind of spooky Mm -hmm. in some (laughs) way sort of like the giants offense has been some years well Mm -hmm. not last year so yeah oracle park yeah i'm trying to divorce my feelings about the ballpark from the name but it's it's hard to do like you know when you think of oracle or you think of course field and these are pleasant places right. and that probably makes it more palatable but i'm i'm trying to separate those things and right. just evaluate it based on the name all right i think i will take pnc sure i don't know maybe i'm being influenced by the fact that i like pnc everyone likes pnc but 
P stands for Pittsburgh, for one thing. It's uh, it's not that obnoxious to have like a local sponsor, I guess, which if we're talking about this in like a, a context neutral draft, then maybe that's even worse because uh, if, if you're in some non-Pittsburgh city and you're taking PNC, then that might be even worse. But I think if you've got the, the local park and it's also just like eh, PNC, like you don't even have to think about what it stands for really. And it's uh, just easy to say sort of rhymes. So PNC works for me. Okay, I'm going to take Tropicana Field because okay. of all the juice fields, it's the best named one, although not the best one to see baseball in, presumably. Yeah, and it's also like, I like orange juice. Orange juice is good. Like you a pulp guy then? No, definitely not a pulp okay, guy. Okay, good. We can keep doing the podcast. <laughs> yeah, but, but like, I don't know. I'd rather think about orange juice than... A loan depot or like a bank or you know insurance or something it's like at least that conjures some positive associations for me so yeah okay i am gonna take oh man i guess i'll take progressive field it's like <sighs> but it's such a bad name with the team that plays it's there. ironically <laughs> ironically named probably yes but uh. But if I'm taking this in like a, if my team had to have one of these things, sure. it's it's okay, I guess, you know, I don't know. It's progressive, <laughs> sure, whatever. Uh, okay, I'm going to take, I guess I'll take, I'll take Petco Park. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, Petco. I almost took Petco. Where the pets go. Right. Yeah, I mean, who doesn't like pets? You go to uh, yeah. Petco, they got some pets in there. Uh, yeah. Similar to Tropicana, I have some positive associations with that brand. And it's another original name of this ballpark. So that was up there for me too. All right, oh, where am I going next? I guess, oh man, Are you gonna so start bad the, now. Are you going to start the run on financial institutions? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um I'll take American Family Field. What oh. the heck? I don't know. It's kind of corny and saccharine, but like, I'm not against American Families. American <laughs> Families. <laughs> Running can... on a pro-family platform. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine with Americans and families in general. <laughs> so that's one of those where like, I don't know, you could think of it as some like extremely wholesome name if you weren't aware that it was a corporate sponsorship. You could just say, oh, it's a place where American families come to watch a ball game. What could be more American than that? So yeah, American Family Field. I am still sort of mad that they changed the name though. I know American Family is a Wisconsin company, so it sort of works, but Miller Park just suited Milwaukee so well, and it was the original name of this park. They're not paying them that much more than they were getting for Miller. I think it's $4 million a year, which was twice as much as they were getting or would have gotten from Miller. Is $2 million a year really enough for a baseball team to undo decades of association with a certain park? I guess it is. I guess I will go with... <sighs> I hate how much time I'm think I'm spending on each of these picks. What a terrible thing to do. I guess in that vein, I'll take Great American Ballpark. Yeah, that's probably my next pick too. You know, Again, it's a little, it's almost jingoistic or something. At the, <laughs> at the it... very least, it's aspirational. <laughs> yes. um, but there have been uh, some good, uh, great Americans. A lot mm -hmm. of good ones, some great yeah. ones, uh, yeah. and hopefully they all go, uh, go watch the Reds and eat <laughs> right. weird chili. Well, this sort of is a run on, on America name, so I'm going with Comerica Park. While we're at it, I'll just take the last one off the board. 
Comerica is it's a bank, right? Comerica I guess. Bank. So <laughs> can I do so there is a very visible sign, a Comerica sign. I think it is a bank in in Globe Life Field. And it is confusing every goddamn time I see it, Ben. <laughs> Yeah, you shouldn't be allowed. If you no. if you have a corporate sponsorship, you should just be limited to the ballpark name and you can't advertise in any other ballpark. Well, and this is a problem with T-Mobile, right? Because they're the official cell carrier of, of MLB. I like the idea that they cast about and they're like, allow us to test every cell carrier inside, which one we find superior, and then that shall be the official one. Anyway, so it's, yeah, you have that problem with T-Mobile also because they got their signs in all the outfields, mm. and then I'm like, where am I? Oh, there are fans there, probably not Seattle. Oh, it's my pick. I got a pick. Yeah. I'm taking Minute Maid. I'm taking the other juice. Oh, wow. You cornered the market on mm. the orange juices. Yeah, I got a, a juice monopoly. <sighs> okay. I don't really like any of my options left here. I guess I'll take Chase Field. It's just kind of unobjectionable and... You can chase people in baseball games sometimes. It makes me think of a rundown or a pickle. Sure. <laughs> and it it's just it doesn't stand out in its corporateness in an ostentatious way. It's just kinda under the radar. Chase field. It's better than, you know, bank one ballpark or something, probably. I think that Chase is an underrated ballpark. It is a lot like watching baseball in a Costco, but it <laughs> is an underrated park. And that's mm-hmm. that that isn't just me saying that because I'm going to probably see more baseball there than I have in the past. <laughs> oh, it's my turn. God, yep. oh no, we're still doing this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take Rogers Center because I. it makes me think of like office supplies. <laughs> I know it's the communications giant, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's Rogers. But what is a Rogers Center? Is it a place where Rogers congregate? Do they sell printer paper? <laughs> Can you get a chair there? What is it? I don't know. Um, so I'm taking that. <laughs> I'm kind of mad at it for supplanting Skydome, which yeah. is, that's a cool name. So I, I dare grudge. Skydome Center. Yeah. <laughs> Rogers Center is just boring, but I never thought of it as a place where Rogers congregate. Yeah, it's like you get all your Rogers together. <laughs> they should have like a Rogers day at Rogers Center where, you know, yeah. if you're Roger, you get in free. Yeah. Or like a, yeah, you get a special, I'm a Roger, you get a t-shirt. <laughs> they could do all kinds of cutesy stuff. Okay. I'm going to go with. Citizens Bank Park, I yeah. think. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm taking this for the same reason as like American Family Field and and you know, it's like in the same genre of like great American ballpark where like citizens are, are good, I guess. <laughs> and they bank. Yeah. So the bank less so, but you know, whatever. There's not yeah. much attractive left here at this stage. It's just hard because it's like the vet was so strong, you know. Um, anyway, that's not the point. I'm going to take, I will take Bush Stadium. Yeah. I would like it more if uh, if those commercials were were narrated by Sam Elliott. <laughs> but, yeah, it's, it's not a bad one for the Cardinals because uh, they have right. a long association with Anheuser-Busch. There's been some sort of Bush Stadium in St. Louis for almost 70 years. But right. if you were to transplant it to someone else, then it would not have the same sort of emotional resonance. But it's not bad. It's not obnoxious. And yeah. we're, we're down to the obnoxious ones now. So, wow, what's left here? I, I guess I'll go with Globe Life Field. <laughs> sure. It's not so bad. <laughs> you like to you like to travel the globe in your yeah, life. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> life is is good. 
<laughs> so what is life is it it's it's got to be like a, a like a mineral extraction or something right? <laughs> Globe, some life. Sort of bank or oh it's insurance so insurance. yes of course it is. yeah these, okay. these names like we're not really aware of what these brands are right, even so though we're like... hyper aware of the names so how effective are these sponsorships really i just think that what would be better if they if we're insisting on keeping this sort of architecture which i think we are if this is what we want, it would be better for them to pick a name that is evocative of the place or the team, you know, says something about the organization, and then they could do presented by, right? And that's a happy medium, right? We're never escaping this. This is the world we live. But uh, the, the globe life we have, one might mm-hmm. say. But they could they could find a way to make it less obnoxious anyway. You took globe life. So yeah. I will take, I guess in keeping with my ring central logic, I will take guaranteed rate field. Yeah, I probably would have gone with that too, which is, uh, it's truly terrible, but uh, <laughs> it's probably the best left here. Is it meant uh. to describe something related to like, Tim Anderson, or you're like, it's oh, like I can count on this. It's like it needed to Chris be. Chris Davis the- is two forty seven. Right? Yeah, oh, not anymore know. though. Not you anymore. Know. He wishes. <laughs> um. Uh, all right. Well, T-Mobile, it is for me. <laughs> I have nothing positive to say about that pick, but I don't know. Yeah, it's better than the alternatives. It's weird when a brand makes you nostalgic for another brand. It's like, oh, give me Safeco back. What did yeah. that even mean? It's another insurance company. Um, Well, I'm taking Truist Park because you're not sticking me with Lone Depot. <laughs> Lone Depot? Do you mean Home Depot? No, I mean Lone Depot. What is that? Uh, well, I, I came up with this idea, so I guess I deserve to end up with Lone Depot Park. I mean, Lone it was really Depot. preordained once you had the first pick that I was going to wind up with Lone Depot Park. It makes... It makes it sound like, like, what if it's like the Lone Depot, like the only one, the only depot of all the depots, this right. is the one, the Lone Depot. You go depot. there to get your loans. Yeah. Hmm. It's like good. a depot. You don't associate that with a mortgage. It's not a place where you exchange grain or- They should just drop the park and just have it be Lone Depot. It's just the Lone Depot. Right. Yeah. I but then it sounds better. even more like Lone Depot. <laughs> <laughs> well, true. and and as was pointed out on Twitter, you know the the pro- one of the the really gnarly problems here is that Lone Depot is now like a presenting sponsor for some round of the playoffs. I don't remember which may be the oh, the no. division series. I don't know. And so the the possibility exists that you could have the NLCS presented by Lone Depot at Lone Depot Park. <laughs> no. Well, that probably Not. won't happen this year. <laughs> so it could. <laughs> it could. It won't, but it could. It's not totally impossible. This is the Orioles. <laughs> Speaking <sighs> of which, stay tuned for the Orioles preview segment a little later on in this episode. But now we will take a quick break and we'll be back to talk about the Dodgers with Pedro Mora. I'm so glad the season is about to start. (laughs) When you do the corporate ballpark sponsorship draft, you know that the offseason has lasted too long. Yeah, and you just sit there and you're like, God, what if it had been delayed and we'd have to keep going? All right, we'll be right back. The L.A. Dodger turns the telescope toward the forest trees. 
right, we have reached the mountaintop. We have climbed to the top of the playoff odds, and we have found the Los Angeles Dodgers. And we have also found Pedro Mora, who covers the Dodgers for The Athletic, and is joining us to talk about them today. Hello, Pedro. Hello, Ben. Hello, Meg. How are you guys? Doing pretty well. This is our last team preview podcast, so I think we're both relishing that a little bit, but also the opportunity to talk about the best team in baseball. And just to pull back the curtain a little bit, we just recorded the Orioles segment, which our listeners will hear next. We just did that. And so I have experienced the whiplash of going from the Orioles depth chart page to the Dodgers depth charts page. And I'm confronted with this just cornucopia of talent. I'm wondering if this is the same sport. Is this the same level of baseball? Sorry, I'm making any Orioles fans who are listening to this feel bad probably, but the contrast is quite strong. And so with the Orioles, we were sort of hunting for strengths to talk about. Here, I find myself hunting for a weakness and hardly really finding one. I just wrote an article the other day about how the Dodgers could challenge the single season wins record. And I know I'm not the only one to contemplate that. So maybe we should start with a weakness if I can challenge you to identify one because we'll talk about strengths. But is there a weakness? Is there an Achilles heel here somewhere? <laughs> it's funny you ask that. I- I'm a negative guy at heart, you know? And so <laughs> I-, I think about this stuff. This is uh, right up your alley then. Yeah. The weaknesses are, you know, and I-, I recognize how weird this sounds. The weaknesses are AJ Pollock in left field, right? Who is, um, you know, an above average hitter historically, uh, mm-hmm. but is, is, you know, not a great bet to be, you know, uh, 30% above average, like a lot of their other guys are, and the back end of the bullpen. Uh, and I say that, you know, knowing that the Dodgers bullpen was the best in the National League last year, and but they don't have, you know, they don't have a, a single guy who's truly really dominant. That would be the weakness. And it, I don't think it's going to be their undoing. And I, I don't think they have an Achilles heel. I think they are the, the best team in baseball, as you said. But if the, if you're going to point to something, it's going to be Pollock and left, who really hasn't hit righties very well as a Dodger, and, you know, could could give way, I think, at some point this summer to uh, to a prospect who proves himself in AAA, Zach Rex or, or Luke Riley. I wouldn't be surprised if, if there's a platoon situation there. And then it's just, you know, their best reliever struck out five dudes per nine innings last year, which had to be like, you know, among the worst among all relievers in the sport. So th- those are weaknesses, but that guy's really good. That guy's Brujar Gratterall. He's great. Um, everyone just swings really early because they're afraid of getting the two strikes with them. So there, there's essentially, essentially no, no weakness, no real weakness. I feel like the the monkey that was on the back of this team for so long was that they were so good and they had yet to win a World Series. And now they are so good and they have won a World Series. And I'm curious, like, what was the vibe like in camp this year? What what change, if any, did you see that having on these guys to have finally pushed past that and to be the reigning champs? I know that their celebration became fraught very, very quickly. Uh, but they, you know, they survived a 60-game sprint that was incredibly strange and they really dominated and then won the World Series. So what was the atmosphere like in camp for them to have finally reached their mountaintop? Yeah, I I think that's a a great question, Meg, one that I unfortunately don't have a sufficient answer for given that I, I, you know, I wasn't really there and I I really just sat on my chair and uh, listened to their Zooms. You couldn't uh, get vibe through Zoom? (laughs) No, I'm not a great vibe checker anyway, but especially (laughs) not by uh, watching them. You know, the Dodgers Zooms don't even have a 
reporters on video. So we're just black screens on there. So it's very, um, it's very un, unhuman, subhuman. So it, uh, what's the vibe? I think that everyone is setting their sights again on another World Series, as I'm sure no one is surprised to hear. They, their expectations are, are massively high. I think that I, I do think that the you know a real celebration is a sufficient is a pretty big motivator for a lot of guys. You know they did not you know it wasn't just the fact that that the Turner thing meant that that was the focus that night and, and our questions to them and and whatnot. But it also they didn't have a you know a parade. They didn't really celebrate with each other in any real way. This this spring was their was their celebration. You know there's a group text that's ongoing that I'm sure has contained more celebrations than really anything they've actually done, you know, in, in person. So there were, there were some weddings, Corey Seager got married. There were a lot of players there, but they they haven't actually celebrated. And so if they, you know, if they pull this off and then in November of this year, when the world is hopefully open back up to, to a great extent, they, you know, they get to parade down Figueroa street. That'd be very exciting for them. And of course they think they can do it. And I think they can do it too. Yeah. I I don't want to have you spoil your win total prediction here, but 162. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if I can find a, a back way into that by asking you to predict what the Dodgers would have won last year if they had had a full season, because that's something I've wondered about, because, of course, they go 43 and 17 in their 60 games last season. And that is uh, the pace of, you know, a 116 win team, basically, right? That's uh, tying the Mariners and they didn't get the opportunity to show that they could do that. Now, their underlying numbers totally supported it. Like they had the the underlying stats of a 43 and 17 win team. But of course, like we've seen incredibly torrid stretches from recent Dodgers teams, like when they won 47 games in 60 games stretch in 2013 or 51 games in a 60 game stretch in 2017. And those teams actually played full seasons and they did not win 120 games or something. So do you think that if they had played that thing out, I mean, this is kind of a roundabout way of asking you like what you think they'll do this year, which I'm trying to get around spoiling, but is there any reason to think that they could not have kept that up with the team that they had last year? Yes, I, I think there is. I, I think there is. They didn't, you know, they didn't lose three consecutive games all year, including the playoffs. And I, I don't think that's going to happen for any great team over the over the course of, of you know 190, 180, whatever it is with the full postseason, 181 games. No, I, I don't think so. They also didn't really rip off a fantastic run like they had in those years. You know, it's it's funny. Like I watched, I watched. I think a, a higher percentage of their innings last year than probably ever before because there was nothing else to do. And uh, they didn't really play that. Like, I know this sounds ridiculous to people listening to this and who, who know that they won as, as well as much as they did. They didn't play that well. They really didn't. Like they, <laughs> I, I swear I'm not like, I'm not shit posting. Like they're, they're, they, they really didn't play their best. I swear to you. Like it, uh, the players said as much like, in the in the NLCS, they they were you know one of their veterans like said that they had never that they hadn't they like they had never reacted as as they should have all season to, to you know to to a light kick in the ass and, and gone on a run they never they never quite did so I think what last year missed was both a positive run and a negative run I think they would have you know they probably would have had both and I think they will but I think they're equipped to handle it because they have so many talented hitters and to have them all slump at once is, is sort of an impossibility. And, you know, a few of their hitters like Mookie Betts and Justin Turner are really equipped to bounce back and still be valuable when they're not, uh, when they're not at their best. You know, it's not just the likes of Bellinger who is, um, you know, who can alternately have a 1200 OPS for a month or a 600 OPS for a month. It's people like Betts who really hasn't been bad for, you know, for a month in, a, in quite a long time. So they're, they're, they're somewhat immune. I don't, I don't expect them to, you know, to lose 15 of 17 or whatever that was. I, I, Again, but uh, I think 
I think that, you know, a full, there's a reason we like full seasons in baseball. Right. And, um, I think that we would have, we, we missed, uh, we missed, we missed maybe them fi- finally finding their stride, which I still maintain. They never totally did last year. And we missed the, uh, the, the terrible August and September of 17. Yeah. I kind of know what you mean. Cause like when I look at the Padres roster, their stats from last season, there aren't a lot of players who were there that I look at and think, oh, he could be even better than that. You know, he could take a, another leap. Like maybe he could sustain that and was already amazing. But, you know, you look at like Machado and Myers and, and on and on. And all these guys had really great seasons. Whereas with the Dodgers, I look at their stats from last year and I think like, oh, maybe they could be better than that, actually, <laughs> with a yeah. lot of them <laughs> at least. And, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you know, the, the Padres uh, obviously upgraded and added a couple of former Cy Young winners and such. So I'm not saying that they are primed for regression or anything, just saying that I have sort of observed that myself. And and one player who kind of fits into that bucket is Cody Bellinger. So Bellinger had sort of a, a down year by his standards and then had the offseason shoulder surgery and showed up with a, a new sort of open stance. So are there any lingering concerns about that or has he been fine since his comeback? He's been fine since he came back. It's just been, you know, 30 at bats and he only has a few hits and um, he never, you know, really was launching baseballs for consistent stretches like he was capable of last year. You know, I think it was an accomplishment for him to have a good postseason. You know, I think that was lost a little bit in Dodgers run last last October that that he you know he had been really awful historic in his in his previous postseason runs. I mean historically bad, like truly like, you know, a, a liability. And he wasn't last year. He was he was far more patient. And I think, you know, if that bleeds into this year, even if he doesn't hit 45 home runs, um, I think that'll be I think they'll be they'll be pleased with that. Um, they're, they're hitting him clean up. They think he's going to be really good. I, uh, I don't know. You know, I, um, I don't know what to expect. He's obviously a very um, up and down player. I think it's it's fascinating to think about how much more. People would have favored him versus Seager, you know, a year ago. And now I think you, I'd ask any any industry person who, who, if they were crazy, if they would take Bellinger over Seager this year, considering how, how successful he's been. So yeah. I don't know what to expect of Bellinger. Um, and, you know, I think it's one of those things where I feel pretty confident that, you know, if you give me, he, I'll say eight, an 850 OPS, and it's going to be within 150 points of that, right, in one direction or the other. Um, but I really don't know uh, what. That's all. That's, that's, so that's my limited confidence level on it. Dodgers fans are going to be furious with us because we're going to back this up with another question about a guy who struggled on a team that is stacked and probably the best in baseball. But I'm curious what you saw from Gavin Lux this spring because, you know, I don't want to make too much of 69 plate appearances because it's 69 plate appearances. He obviously has prospect pedigree. He's a talented guy, but he struggled in 2020 and looked overmatched at times and just not comfortable in the batter's box he didn't look comfortable in the field he still might not be comfortable in the field so what do you expect from him in 2020 and how is he approaching kind of riding the ship uh yeah it's a great it's a great question gavin lux in 2019 dominated baseball like i haven't seen anyone you know it was obviously at a different level but i i went to go report on him and uh you know, in baseball, it, like you never know if someone's going to actually have a good game when you're going to go write about them. And uh, but with him, like it, it, it felt like every at bat, like I was there for eight of them, and he he ripped the ball in six of them. It, it was just like a it was an impossible level of success that the sport doesn't even allow for. But he he had, and this is you know at, at AAA. Uh, and then he gets to the major leagues and he was just okay. And then in 2020, it, uh, it was all a mess. I think he had a really hard year last year. He arrived late to summer camp for reasons the Dodgers haven't disclosed. And then, you know, his hometown of, of Kenosha, Wisconsin was, was the subject of, um, 
significant social unrest that, you know, hit him really hard from what I understand. And I think he, he was never quite right mentally, physically uh, during the year. He's been really good offensively this spring. The Dodgers are, are really confident in his ability to hit. I think his, his ability to defend is, is a little bit of a different question. Gavin Lux battled the yips in 2019, starting with the spring that he had a lot of uh, expectations on him. And then again, uh, last year in 2020 down the stretch, you know, what ended his chance uh, was actually not his offense last year, but his defense. He had uh, several bad throws leading, uh, I think it all com- uh, culminated on September 9th, and then he never played uh, the field again after that. He's been pretty good this year in the field, uh, this spring, I should say. And um, there was a throw the other day that I noticed that was a, a bit of miss. So it's something to monitor. I think, you know, when he's right, he has all the potential in the world. This is a guy who's, you know, since he was 19, has been reworking his swing in the, in the way that Robert Vinskoyak and, and Craig Wallenbrock recommended. And is really, when he is right, is is, is an amazing hitter. So I, I expect that to happen at times. You know, I don't know when exactly. I think the throwing is maybe going to re- throw a wrench into everything. But um, the Dodgers believe in him. I think the Dodgers are pretty good at their at their judgment of players. You know, he he might break out this year. He really might. Dodgers have about eight starting pitchers that just about any team would very happily pencil into their rotation. And mm-hmm. there are some odd men out there. So who is on the outside looking in right now? How might that change? Will this be a, a fluid group and swing men? Or will it be anointed starters who's best suited for the bullpen? How do you see that all shaking out? Yeah, they uh, David Price is, is is a high leverage reliever for the Dodgers. The, that's mm-hmm. a real thing that happens starting on <laughs> Thursday, April first, in Denver, Colorado. <laughs> Tony Gonsolin is also going to relieve for them right now, uh, and Dustin May got the the fifth starter spot. They confirmed on uh, on Monday. I um I expect that all to change a lot. You know, I think the Dodgers really didn't have you know except for Bauer who who wasn't there last year. All of their pitchers had one reason or another that they're they're not quite that you wouldn't quite expect them to go, you know, 32 starts this year. Walker Buehler had a bunch of blister issues, literally multiple blisters, I think, at once on his on his hands. Clayton Kershaw had had an injury that delayed his season. Julio Arias was struggled in first innings and, and, and still hasn't uh, built up to a level that he's quite ready to go, I think, 180 to, 100, to 200 innings. May and Gonsolin haven't either. Price obviously didn't pitch at all. Uh, Jimmy Nelson, who probably is that eighth starter you're referring to, hasn't pitched a lot in a long time, but looks good this spring. So yeah, they have they have a ton of um, of starting pitching talent, and I think they also have some questions, but they're they're equipped because of that talent to be able to to make up for the the questions. I think every team is is worried about how they're going to get through you know 162 starts. The Dodgers can count on you know they hope I think that all seven eight of those guys can make 15 to 20 starts, and then you know the, their injuries will um, the natural injuries that emerge and the, the innings limits that they want to hold guys to will be taken care of just because of the depth. And they also have Josiah Gray waiting at the alternate side now. Who um, yeah, he was actually number eight for oh, me. He so was maybe eight. it's <laughs> okay. Maybe it's maybe it's nine or ten. I don't know. Yeah, I mean Jimmy Elson was pretty good not that long ago. So I, yeah, uh, yeah, it um it might be nine. Um, I think the Gray could be an option as a as a long reader also. We could also see the Dodgers do sort of a piggyback approach where they have you know May and Gonson tackle three or four innings at a time like they did sometimes in the uh, postseason. Not a great success uh, last year. I guess we can stick with pitching and ask how this bullpen is going to come together. And I realize some of it might depend on those guys that you mentioned and how they're going to move through various roles. But perhaps we can spend a minute on Kenley because um, I think that his hold on the closer role has been tenuous for a little while. And there's some reason to look at his year last year and think that the you know underlying statistics indicated it actually was better than it looked, but he's not the dominant guy that he was. 
is he still to the closer for now? And if he at any point falters in the year, how do you see them shaking up that role? Yeah, great question. His his underlying metrics last year are so strange, uh, right? Because he was really good at eliciting weak contact, but, yeah. but not really good at anything else, else. I guess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I don't really know what to make of it. He is not, I, I don't know. The Dodgers say he's their closer. You know, they've also said that the last few years, and he really hasn't been the same since the Astros World Series in 2017. He is still a pretty good reliever, I think is fair to say. He, But, you know, I wouldn't have, you know, if you argued last year that he was their fifth or sixth best reliever, you know, during the uh, playoffs, I think you that I couldn't have told you you're wrong. I don't know who their who their best guy is. It might be Gratterall, who I mentioned earlier. He's also hurt right now and won't be um, won't be beginning the season uh, with the club. Neither is Joe Kelly, who is um, you know, you guys know all about Joe Kelly. He's um, either he can be great, he can be pretty pretty mediocre at times. You don't know what to expect from him. He's got great stuff. Yeah, he, Joe <laughs> Kelly. He's got great stuff. Then I would also, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that I, I loved, um, it was probably the best moment of my week when I saw you refer to Craig Goldstein as an accomplished shit poster. <laughs> A lot of people enjoyed that. I howled. Yes. Yes. It was wonderful. Um, so sorry to sidetrack, but I really wanted to say that. Thank you Thank so you. much for that. It, it, Kenley, I don't know. I don't know. I think the daughters want him to be their closer. This is a guy who derives a significant amount of self-confidence, I think, from being the closer. You know, his his closing games in Los Angeles became an event over the years and with his song. And, um, and I think... It's fair to say he brought up a lot that, that it was harder to find that adrenaline last year coming to pitch without fans at Dodger Stadium. And I think that's somewhat valid. Uh, so maybe, you know, perhaps that'll be better this year, especially as the crowds get fuller as the season goes on. And, you know, in September, they have maybe a full, you know, full 56,000. I don't know. I think the Dodgers are confident that they have a bunch of relievers who could do it, you know. And if they need to have Dustin maybe their closer, they can have Dustin maybe their closer, although he's really not a strikeout guy either. You know, Julio Arias could be their high leverage reliever. I, I, I don't know that if I had, I don't think anyone's going to have more than, you know, 15 to 20 saves on this team this season. Maybe, and maybe not even that. So, um, fantasy players, shy away, man. Shy away. This is a great podcast to get fantasy tips. That might be the first oh, yeah. one ever. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so we're talking about pitching. We haven't talked about power yet. So deep breath. Here we go. Uh, so mm. we know why they wanted him and, and signed him. They think he's a, a good pitcher, clearly. But do you think that they had misgivings? Uh, do you think that they came close to not signing him because of the, the bowerness of it all? Or do you think they looked at that as uh, either not a negative or just sort of a, a way to get him when other people weren't interested in him? I mean, I'd be interested in knowing just how he has gelled with the team, but that's just probably something that's hard to answer from afar. Yeah, I don't know, guys. I mean, he, um, you know, he he does post some videos on his uh, YouTube channel of uh, his workouts with the Dodgers, and you can hear how teammates interact with him. I I have uh, been watching those. I can't tell quite yet. You know how they feel when they are asked by reporters. They universally say that they uh, enjoy being around him. Uh, as far as what the Dodgers considered when they signed him, I, I think uh, it'd be naive to think that they didn't. You know, they weren't aware. I, I think it's also fair to say that like Andrew Friedman isn't as online as we are, um, right? And Ben doesn't seem like he's that online. Um, I'm pretty online, and yeah, there's no way that he's as online as I am. And uh, so I think to an extent, like the the harassment that he that he has enacted enacted on people is is like something that it's hard to quite understand and grasp unless you're you're there seeing it as it happens over the year as it's happened over the years and so it's it's like such it's i I never know what to quite make of it 
it's not a crime, right? He, there's and um, so you, it's hard for me to say that the team should cannot sign a player who is is you know harasses women on the internet as you know, but I, I you know I, I wouldn't um, but I'm not them and I think they they certainly know they certainly know and they um, you know they they think that he can um, put it aside for a while and pitch really well for them and, and help them repeat and become a dynasty that that would be my thought you know I think they I think they know and they decided uh, they know to an extent and they decided that they, they he's worth it and they probably think that you know if not for that he would have signed for even more money. You know, which seems crazy to me, considering the AAV is going to get over those that two-year deal. But um, that's that's what they think, and I he I wouldn't be that surprised if he's you know turns in a two-three ERA this year, and you know is like the second most valuable pitcher in baseball. I also wouldn't be that surprised if he pitches more like his you know his career numbers. But they know more about this than I do, and so I think it's probably pretty likely that they're right. I wonder how many innings he will throw with both eyes open. We don't have to linger on Bauer, but he and Justin Turner's return are sort of an interesting way to maybe get into a question I have on the way that they have thought about their roster construction and also their payroll. Like the, you know, the Padres had this great offseason. They traded for a bunch of guys. They extended Tatis. And then the Dodgers being the Dodgers were like, we'll, we'll blow through not one, not two, but three competitive balance tax thresholds in order to assemble the roster that we have and generally that's the you know that's the culmination of a couple of years of trying to figure out how they might do that so I'm curious if you can talk about sort of how they approached this offseason generally when they became comfortable with the idea that they were going to exceed those thresholds and kind of what their thought process was around that because it was a, a refreshing change from you know many off seasons of most of baseball being pretty penny pinching. Yeah, yeah, you're you're right about that. They were pretty clear, I think, as clear as you can be with a free agent that they wanted to re-sign Justin Turner. You know, Andrew Friedman was was relatively upfront about that from the start. You know, in a, in a way that you you don't typically see. So I I always expected that to happen. I think most fans did. It sounded like, I, although there was some question once the Bauer signing happened, but it it was also that brought about the question of like, if you're going to blow over it for for one player, then you can for another. And, you know, Andrew makes a, makes a repeated point of, of, uh, bringing up that the Dodgers don't see their payroll as a one year thing. They see it as a, um, you know, they look at it in five year spans. And so Andrew Friedman makes a point that the Dodgers always analyze their payrolls in five year spans. So once they signed Bauer, they felt like they could go over and then in, in a year or two return back under that number. Yes, they'll give up a bunch of money and a pick due to this year's, uh, maneuverings, but it's, um, they think it's worth it. You know, I think they're, they're clearly in my eyes going as far as they can to, to ensure that they, they, they repeat and this, and this franchise becomes, you know, like the, the model one of the, of the, the century that everyone refers to. And I think one more win in the next couple of years, will do that. And the Dodgers still don't because of their maneuvering over recent years, they still don't really have a lot of money on the books after 2022. I think it's, I think they're still like seventh in baseball in terms of commitment after those years, maybe, maybe even more than that. Like, some teams you wouldn't expect to have more money committed than the Dodgers over those years. So it, um, it, I think it makes sense. And yeah, it's, it's, um, for all the things that you might, you know, critique like the Bauer signing, I think it's still a good time to be a Dodgers fan. The team is, uh, the franchise is extraordinarily committed. They have, um, you know, a remarkable player development machine that turns out, you know, average or above average big leaguers with remarkable regularity. And there's no sign that it's going to stop. I don't know when, you know, this team is not going to win 
90 games again. It's going to be a long time. Yeah, that is something I wanted to ask about because the Dodgers farm rankings are a little lower than we are used to seeing them in recent years. They're kind of like middle of the pack now in a lot of places, which is just, you know, I always expect them to be not only the best team in baseball, but also have the, the best farm system at the same time. And they've fallen a little bit there and, you know, for the right reasons, right? They've just promoted a, a whole lot of really great players from their system and it's hard to stay atop that ranking forever. But is that any kind of long-term concern? I mean, it doesn't sound like you think it is. And clearly they have such a track record of getting more out of players than anyone expects. So you could argue that uh, unless, you know, all of the prospect experts are just sort of bumping them up because they're the Dodgers and we've seen them turn a lot of people into stars, then maybe there are some unsung players on the farm who will turn into the next generation of starters and stars for them. But, you know, it's at least in terms of, I guess, near-term upper-level talent, not that they need any more near-term upper-level talent. I guess it's a a little thinner than it has been of late. Yeah, I I think you're right about that, Ben. I'm I'm certainly not a prospect expert at all, but um, my understanding from talking to people who are is that there's still a good good amount of uh, mid-level prospects in the organization, probably among the most in the sport. Guys who, who, you know, will come out and eventually, you know, I'm talking about like two war players and uh, they're really good at that. And that's, those are valuable pieces, you know, and um, you know, when you have those at cost controlled levels, it's still incredibly valuable for the organization. So I think there are tons of those across the organization. They, they seem to be focusing on certain types, you know, to develop. They've got a ton of uh, catching prospects in the organization that they really like that. And they're going to be pretty set at that position for a long time. And they can turn those probably into, into, you know, to, prospects of other types or major leaguers if they need to you know Caper Ruiz is, is, is one of their top guys and, and doesn't have a path to playing time in the organization and probably will be traded at some point and or somebody will in, in, at the catching position so I think you're, you're right overall though that they lack top end uh, talent I think you can you know you can also see that they understand that and that they're signing Bauer for as much as they are because that's that's where they can make up that gap you know Andrew Friedman has been pretty open in the last couple of years that explained that the 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 player development world has changed a lot and I, the yield on players is, is high is way higher now than it was you know they were they were I think they were among the first at that to really tap into it and I think other teams are tapping into it uh, as well. And so I think that they're going to find it harder to, to have that same advantage that they had in say 17, 18 and 19, when it felt like they had a new rookie every week who was, um, you know, proving capable right away. I think other teams have caught up some, but I think the Dodgers are going to be continually able to, to, to bring up, you know, capable players and they can supplement that with the, the stars. You know, they could lose three stars from their, their current major league roster and still be fit to, you know, to win divisions going forward. You mentioned that their payrolls start to thin out as you look out a couple of years. And I wonder if one of the players that they might spend that on to keep him around is Corey Seager. Do you have a sense of whether Seager will actually be allowed to hit the free agent market? Is there an extension in the works? And if there isn't, do you think that they might bring him back anyway? Great question. I think um, I, I expect Seager to reach free agency. The Dodgers have done actually quite a bit of letting their players reach free agency and then re-signing Bringing them. Bringing them back, yeah. Yeah, more than probably any team, right? I would think. 
Somebody needs to research that. I mean, between Rich Hill, Justin Turner, uh, Kenley Jansen, Clayton Kershaw, wait, no, Kershaw didn't quite reach free agency last year. Just about did, right? Yeah. 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 Essentially did, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Turner again. You know, it it is unusual, it it feels like. For every other team, you think like when that happens, they're done. So I wouldn't be surprised if Seager returns at all. Um, But I I think it's at this point, you know, him having a a Scott Boris's agency, us talking, you know, on the eve of opening day, I expect that to, you know, to remain the case. I think Seager is an incredibly talented uh, hitter. He also has some injury concerns and, and some positional concerns going forward. You know, where, where does he play when he's 31? He's, he's so talented. Uh, he, he was incredibly dominant offensively last for basically all of last year. And I think you could make a pretty good case that he's the best hitter out of that in the shortstop class. I'm curious to see what the industry will decide when, the, when most of them or maybe all of them reach free agency. But um, I expect him to, be, to become a free agent. I expect the Dodgers to be involved in the conversation to, to retain him. You know, a lot of fans frame the question as like which which two of the, which one or two or three of the three between Walker Buehler, Cody Bellinger, and Corey Seager the Dodgers will retain. And I think um, my my bet is actually that that Buehler is the most likely of the three to, re, to remain in the organization because the Dodgers understand how rare it is to develop a true ace in this era, and that Buehler is um, sort of irreplaceable in that in that in that sense, or at least you know more expensive to replace on the on the free agent market. And I think the Dodgers can develop, have, have and can develop so many, you know, capable position players, as we were discussing that, that, that they can, you know, they can supplement with the, whoever leaves between Bellinger and Seager. And so I think one of them is probably likely to stay. I don't know who it's, it's so much depends on, you know, what kind of seasons they have in the years leading up to free agency and then what other teams, um, what other teams commit what, what to them. But yeah, Seager, probably going to reach free agents. So everyone is excited for the Dodgers-Padres rivalry and race. Is this something that the Dodgers care about? Are they paying attention to this? Not that they should feel threatened, but do they feel pushed? Do they feel challenged? Do they feel, I don't know, are they bridling at the idea that there are two powerhouses and that the team that has just won the World Series and eight consecutive division titles actually has something to worry about? Like, you know, do they have enough swagger that they're just like, you're beneath our notice until proven otherwise? Or are they actually looking forward to taking it to the Padres this year. Yeah, I think it's the it's the looking forward. A lot of players have, have spoken pretty excitedly about the matchup. You know, the, the games the Dodgers played against the Padres last year were by far their most entertaining of the regular season. I mean, by a large margin, they were really good baseball games. They were fun. You know, Tatis did some wild stuff and bat flipped like like hell off Ross Stripling. It was a great time. There was um there was all sorts of, of really entertaining baseball. You know, the managers got mad and bat flips occurred and all that stuff. So no, I think the, the players are very excited. I think the Dodgers still think they're you know superior. They're not. Um, um, they're not like you know banging their chests and, and shouting that, but I, I I I certainly think that they they think that, and that's how I've read into their comments. But I think they welcome the challenge. You know, I think um, I think players like the you know the athletes that they are like the competition that that the Padres present, and I expect it to be pretty competitive. You know, I think um, I do I expect that to still be a thing in, in September that the uh, the Padres can win the division. I think it's gonna it's gonna go for yeah five or six months. You mentioned Bueller. I'm curious if there's anything that you think we really need to be concerned about after his 2020, which is like it's 36 innings and he wasn't bad. His ERA was slightly higher than uh, it had been the year before in years past, but you know, his, his underlying stats were a little less encouraging. Is there anything that we, you know, really need to worry about there? Or do you think that he will return to form? I would bet on him returning to form. I would bet on him being the Dodgers best starter this year. If it was, if it was up to me. 
The, the problem with Bueller last year was, yeah, the, the underlying statistics were not really that great. I mean, he really didn't pitch very much, and he didn't pitch very much because of blisters, because he wasn't right. built up, because he um, because he took a lot of the shutdown off, um, because the Dodgers weren't sure when the um, you know the actual season would start, and so he really wasn't. Um, just as he finally got built up in in mid August, he he succumbed to the blisters, and then he was still building up as the postseason began, as I'm sure you remember. So it was just it was sort of a bit of a mess of a year, and then you know he kind of redeemed it with uh, with his his NLCS and World Series success. So he threw all offseason. He went into this spring feeling, he said, much better and confident about the um, the way that it went. He, he didn't have a great spring. Not sure if that matters. I think the guy's really good. I think he is uh, capable of tinkering and moving on the fly and doesn't, um, you know, he is not someone who is going to go through significant stretches uh, of poor performance while he's healthy because he can adapt um, as he does. And so... Um, I expect him to be really good. I think it'll be, I'm interested to see how many, you know, how many starts the Dodgers can coax out of him. You know, they've been pretty careful with him in years past. He's barely ever started on four days rest. It's got to be like the least percentage of four days rest starts of any starter uh, in the sport since he debuted. It's like eight, eight out of his 60 or something like that. Um, they give him extra rest whenever possible. And I think they're going to keep trying to do that this year. The Dodgers bench, uh, I wouldn't say it's necessarily weaker than it was, but it's differently composed, at least, with Jack Peterson gone, with Kike Hernandez gone. Did they just let those guys leave because they had players like Edwin Rios and people who can sort of step in and fill those shoes like Rios has hit incredibly well in very small samples, but... Can the current group of Beatty and Rios and McKinstry, you know, can they sort of be the successors to those bench guys who turned the Dodgers into the the team pretzel that could just kind of, you know, put above average players at every position and move guys around? Like, will this team be any less interchangeable or, or flexible or versatile than it was? Yeah, I, I don't think it will be. You know, they still have Chris Taylor as a utility man, and he can he can play everywhere pretty competently. It's especially at the even at the tough positions of shortstop and center, right? So you when you start from there, you can really still keep the uh, the pretzel going. Um, McKinstry is probably the biggest question mark, just as you know, having seven or nine plate appearances to his name, right? Um, the Dodgers think he can hit, and um, the man he's replacing, Kike Hernandez, you know, while he's a great defender, probably an underrated defender, is uh, was not, you know, a particularly successful hitter, particularly in his last year. Uh, with the Dodgers, you know, was, we're talking like a 90 OPS plus kind of guy. And I think they think McKinstry can do that and maybe even do a little bit more. You know, he's he's um, late bloomer, didn't really have any power. I, I believe he had zero home runs in college, maybe two in his first couple of professional seasons. And then after uh, an 18 kind of um, revamp, come to Jesus moment, he developed the power, changed, uh, changed his swing to, to accommodate that and has been really good since then and was breaking out alongside Lux in 19 in AAA. So the Dodgers are going to, you know, going to get him some playing time. I, Dave Roberts has already said he's going to start once in the opening series, and I think they're they're going to give him a few hundred plate appearances this year and see what he can do. And um, I, I expect it to be pretty okay. Yeah, and uh, yeah, Rios, like you said, is um is, is is sort of like Peterson in that he can you know he can rake against right in pitching and hit for a ton of power. Doesn't have a position that you really love to play him at, but has worked himself to be pretty competent at first and third. Obviously, the the coming DH maybe in 2022 would really help. His, um, his, his, his chances. I think the one reason the Dodgers felt comfortable letting those guys leave is that a lot of the players we've named are, are you know, not old, but old for prospect status, right? Rios is up there. McKinstry turns 26 in a few weeks. Uh, Zach Rex, who's a, a possible uh, Peterson replacement, is 27, right? And, and still has yet to debut. So 
you know, the time is essentially now for, for, to try these guys out. And uh, the Dodgers also have the flexibility of if they need, you know, if, they, if it turns out they need a right-handed bench bat, they can go out and acquire that in, in July. It's not going to be a, a huge problem. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think it's, it's interesting to see the, 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 the line change, you know, in, in the bench. We, you sort of felt like Hernandez was going to be there forever as a do-everything person they could have. And I also expected both players to get paid a little bit better than they did. As free agents, you know, Peterson to have come, be two years removed from a 36 home run dominant season and to get settled for a one-year $7 million deal is something considering his success. But, um, you know, it's a, it's a new world in this sport. And uh, I'm a little surprised that the Dodgers weren't, you know, in play for him at, at that price. But uh, I think they think they can, you know, they can replace it for cheaper. I feel like we've maybe asked you this question before, and no one is going to remember some of the managerial wonkiness uh, on Dave Roberts' part in the World Series, both because a lot of it came in Game 4, which obviously ended with such a, a memorable walk-off for the Rays that who remembers the rest of the game, and because Kevin Cash had his own uh, managerial foibles. But I feel like every year there is some... Dave Roberts chicanery in terms of his pitching decisions in the postseason. And it didn't end up mattering for them last year because they won the World Series. But is there something about October that that sort of causes some kind of breakdown in what is otherwise, I think, a pretty analytically sound approach to how pitchers are deployed on the Dodgers part? Am I making too much of this? I feel like we've asked you before. No, I don't think you're making too much of it at all. I think it's I think it's like a really fascinating question is that this this he's he's by all accounts is a great manager, right? And players love him. He seems to make good decisions on a regular basis from, you know, from April, October. And even in October, it's generally good. But there does seem to be, like you said, something amiss once or twice in October. I think last year, the biggest thing for me that really rang the alarm bells was the decision to you know to tell Pedro Baez that he was out of the game in Game Four, and then after I forget, I've tried to remove some of this from my memory, but I think it was the Dodgers. Then they, basically, fifteen minutes after he told Baez that he he was out of the game, he told him, "Hey, go back in," and that's you know not acceptable, right? And um, to Dave's credit, he did take responsibility for that in the post game press conference, brought it up. But yeah, it's it's um it it was overshadowed, I think, by by all that mess of a play with Taylor misplaying and Kenley Jansen not covering uh, home plate, not backing up home plate. And so, yeah, it, it was uh, it was strange. It didn't make a ton of sense. It was not, you know, I think it's, it's the biggest problem is that on occasion, he's not put his players in the best position to succeed. I think I would attribute the 2019 LDS game five to that. You know, when you, um, when you bring out Kershaw to face Adam Eaton in relief, I think that's fine. But when you know the the next inning begins and um, and Anthony Rendon and Juan Soto are coming up, you better have a reliever ready when Anthony Rendon hits a home run for for the event that Anthony Rendon hits a home run. And you can't have you know you can't. That's I, I thought it was a totally inadvisable choice, and you have to be ready to adapt in that moment. And it's and then and then to have Joe Kelly come out after that only compounded the error. You know I, I don't I'm not. I don't think that that overwhelms or counteracts everything else that Dave Roberts does well. I still think he's, you know, a, a very good manager, uh, as little as we can understand that. I think he is good at it. And I think the um, the sheer amount of, of controversy control and suppressing that he's done has been is obviously <laughs> elite <laughs> as much as that I get that that nebulous thing can again be quantified. But yeah, it's um it's it's strange. It's 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 strange. And to answer, I think I think you kind of hit it is that. 
it's a really pressure filled situation, right? In, in October. And I think sometimes it, yeah. I certainly make worse decisions when I'm under pressure on occasion. And I, <laughs> I think it would not be um, crazy for even, you know, even the most seasoned person to do it. I think the concerning thing is that when someone's in their first year on the job, you expect that. And then you think maybe, you know, come year five, they might be better, but maybe it's just really freaking hard no matter what year you're in. And, um, you know, we've been critic. I remember when I used to criticize Dusty Baker all the time in the postseason, And now I think, uh, you know, now I think he's like God's gift to, to the world of managing. So, uh, you know, my, 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 my philosophy on it has changed. I still think Dave's good at this. And I still think he has made some really confounding decisions. There are so many good players on this team. <laughs> just yeah. looking down the, the depth chart, just like. I was, when you started talking about the Orioles, I was thinking like where in the Dodgers organization <laughs> you would, you would have to start. To, yeah. to, to build a 26-man roster that would be worse than the Orioles. And I think it would be like 33rd, the 33rd through 60th best Dodgers players it would be, be about equal to the Orioles' 26-man. Uh, so, that might be overstating, but it's a, it's in that territory. I'm just thinking like we're we're 40 minutes in here. We're kind of coming to the end. And I'm like, well, we haven't really talked about Mookie Betts. We haven't talked yeah, about Clayton God. Kershaw. Clayton we haven't talked Kershaw. about yeah. Will Smith. We like, you know, we're, we're several superstars away from like getting to everyone. It's just, you know, I don't have questions about all of them because uh, we know who they are and they're great. And uh, I look forward to watching more of them. So I don't know if there's like, <laughs> if there's one of these players we haven't asked about who's like doing something new or like you're interested in some aspect of their season, like one of these just great players who we just haven't talked about yet. Like if, uh, I don't know, Clayton Kershaw's thrown a new pitch or something. I mean, have we missed any new developments? Because like one of the things I like about this team is that we've just seen them together for so long. I, I wrote about this in the playoffs last year because it's so rare for a team to make the playoffs every single year and to keep a lot of its core together. And it's just like the recurring characters of this popular show that we watch every October, the Dodgers. And, you know, for the most part, at least in the past, they've uh, been fairly easy to root for as they were failing to to break through. So, you know, I don't know if this is the year when uh, if, if they win again, when we all get sick of the Dodgers and start hating them and want them to let someone else win for a change, like let the Padres win, but they're not quite there yet. So I don't know if there's uh, anyone that we should have asked about that we didn't. This is your opportunity to tell us. <laughs> yeah, that that is a good question. But when when fans will turn on them, I think it, I yeah. think you're right that if they if they win this year, there will be like a significant backlash. I know that's how it was when I was a kid, and the Yankees kept winning. Yep. I guess Kershaw I should mention that his velo is, his velocity is down this spring to to not not like an alarming extent, but to an extent that it makes it seem like perhaps. Uh, he's going to be back to like the 2018-19 era uh, Kershaw than, than last year. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It remains to be seen. We're, we're still talking in March. But um, he, um, you know, last spring before the shutdown, he was up to 92 with regularity. And that was, you know, really exciting people across the organization after his driveline visit. And uh, this year that has not been the case. You know, it's, it's not like 86. It's just 90 or so. He's, he's sitting most days. So we'll see what that means. But it's something to... You know, he's, uh, he's 33 years old now, so we should, we'll, we'll see what happens. I'm preparing my summary of our positional power rankings, which means I go through and slice up the, the rankings a bunch of different ways so that our readers can be excited about the Dodgers and decide not to watch the Orioles, I guess. And uh, the Dodgers are one of three teams that have, that have nine top 10 finishes and one of two teams with six top five finishes from a positional ranking perspective. They're just really good. <laughs> <laughs> is, is like Muncie in the top five at first? Uh, yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. There you go. Yeah. yeah. We didn't. We didn't talk about him either. Yep. He'd be like the didn't even best player list on Muncie when I was listing stars that I hadn't talked about yet. So yeah. that's how deep that goes. So and it, it, it's a little yeah. bit. It's a little bit of a fib because I calculate this with a. Uh, with DH for everyone, and the Dodgers are fifteenth, and that's just interleague and pinch hit plate appearances, really. So, oh boy. <laughs> well, yeah. On that note, I guess uh, we've been building up to asking you how many games this team will win. I'm gonna go low. I'm gonna go low. I'm going one o two. Whoa. Which, yeah. Wow. I, I debated a little higher, but um, I'll just go. Uh, yeah, sixty losses is a nice round, even number. We like those. So 102 wins that that puts them comfortably in the in the you know number one seed in the National League and and, and winning the division. Um, and Sandy, I think San Diego will be right up you know in the in the high 90s. So uh, that'll be fun. But yeah, I'll, I'll say 102 just because humans are fallible and will make mistakes and are liable to let up at some point. And you know they might lose five games in a week at some point this summer. Yeah, well, that's probably the the correct thing to do. That's what the projection systems would say to keep it reasonable. I I would have preferred that you went with uh, one fourteen or something, but I I understand and respect it. I mean, could you you couldn't even co- tell me I'm wrong if I said like one eighteen, right? Like, it wouldn't be the most nuts <laughs> thing of all time. You've yeah, you've heard crazier projections on here than that, probably. Yeah, I mean, I just wrote about it. It's possible. It's uh, not the most likely outcome that they get there, but it is a conceivable outcome. So I'm. Uh, looking forward to getting to see them try because we didn't <laughs> get to see that last year and uh, I think Dodgers fans are pretty happy with how that worked out but I, I would have liked to see them make a run at some sort of record or who knows how many records they can make runs at so this time they will get the chance and you can follow along with Pedro on Twitter at his name Pedro Mora you can also read him covering the Dodgers at The Athletic always a pleasure thank you Pedro thank you Ben thank you Meg Bye-bye. Now that we have teased the Orioles segment so brilliantly (laughs) that we've uh, made everyone want to stick around to listen. No, please do. It's fun. There are some good stories on this team. We will be back in just a moment with Joe Trezza to talk about Baltimore. Well, this is the third consecutive year that we have ordered the season preview series this way, where we end up with the team with the worst projection last. And this is also, not by coincidence, the third consecutive year that we have wrapped up the series with the Baltimore Orioles. So we can't say last but not least about the Orioles because they actually are least and that is why they are last. But we can say it about our guest, who is joining us also for the third consecutive season. And he is Joe Trezza, who covers the Orioles for MLB.com. Joe, thank you for bringing up the rear yet again. Thank you, Ben and Meg. It's it's always great to be with you on the last week of spring. It's becoming a rite of passage of sorts. It's becoming part of my, my spring schedule. So that's <laughs> that's wonderful. 
Yeah, I hope for your sake and for Orioles fans' sake that eventually we will be able to have you on at a different point in the series, but it's not to be this year. Although I will say that they are currently tied down to the first decimal place with the Rockies for the worst projected record in baseball. So I guess that's some solace. They are no worse than the Rockies, according to the projections. So I don't know where to start with the Orioles. I guess we could start with some of the last minute cuts and roster decisions because we were talking about some of those on our most recent episode wondering what exactly happened with Felix who initiated that parting of ways and then also the release of Yolmer Sanchez which raised some eyebrows around the game given the apparent lack of a replacement second baseman. Yeah so so we can go through them one by one they're two different situations with Felix Hernandez he simply got hurt in the middle of spring. Um, he had some right elbow discomfort. Uh, I believe it was in his third start against the Pirates. And this was a guy who came in really kind of looking like a shell of himself in terms of stuff. His first outing was at Ed Smith Stadium. Um, I remember it well, it was under the lights. I was one of the only reporters there because of the limited access this spring. And Felix Hernandez came out throwing about 80, 84, 85 mile an hour fastballs, 86. He topped out at 86 a few times, but that's really where his fastball was living the entire outing. The tracking system, it was having trouble differentiating his fastball from his changeup in that first outing. And, you know, that, that kind of lack of lack of velocity continued throughout the spring in his second and his third outing. And then in his third outing, after one scoreless inning, he came up with some pain in his elbow and the Orioles took him out of the game. And he spent the next two weeks or so trying to rehab that through a few side sessions, um, received a lot of treatment, but he simply just ran out of time uh, to make this team. Wasn't fully healthy, wasn't ready to pitch by the end of spring, and that's that's why he didn't make the rotation, and he had an opt-out like a lot of these minor league deals do. He had an opt-out, and then he exercised it uh, on Sunday, and that was really when the Orioles' rotation came together. There were a few surprises. Actually, the whole the whole real rotation behind John Means is can be considered a surprise because I don't think anybody saw Matt Harvey being the number two starter. And I don't think many people saw Bruce Zimmerman uh, beating out Keegan Aiken, who's a more highly rated prospect, both left-handers, but Keegan Aiken's been more decorated um, and more highly ranked for a while now. Bruce Zimmerman beat out Keegan Aiken for a rotation spot. And then Jorge Lopez kind of swooped in. He was out of options and he kind of profiled as a swing man, long man reliever type, but he swooped in once Felix Hernandez wasn't healthy enough to make the rotation. So you have a, <laughs> a rotation full of surprises behind John Means, and and that's why why King Felix won't be continuing his his career in Baltimore. With Yomer Sanchez, it was his roster move was I, I think a much bigger surprise by the end of spring because you know after a few weeks of Felix Hernandez being kind of on the shelf and sidelined in treatment, you know there, there wasn't a lot of access this spring, so we were kind of really at the mercy of what we saw on the field and what we were told. You know, some teams aren't the most forthcoming in terms of what they tell about injuries and. We hadn't seen Felix in quite some time. So by the end of spring, it was kind of apparent that he probably wasn't going to make the team. Uh, Yomer Sanchez was supposed to be the opening day second baseman up until about four days ago. And the Orioles had need for pitching depth, which they will have the entire season. I know every team has the need for depth this year, and it's exacerbated by the shortened season last year. There's just so many more innings that have to be filled. But the Orioles have so few established starters and such a let's call it a turnoverable bullpen, that they are going to be struggling to provide innings every single night. Depth is going to be such an issue for them throughout the season. And so Michael Elias made a trade with the Indians for, for Adam Plutko, 
who's been a you know veteran swingman, right-hander type, wasn't going to make Cleveland's very, very good rotation. Um, and the Orioles have a recent history of, of using this final week of spring to kind of take flyers on some talented players who don't make better teams and who become available later in the spring. Uh, a few years ago, it was Pedro Severino, who became their starting catcher. This year, it was Adam Plutko, who they traded for cash. And the Orioles decided to designate Yomer Sanchez and kind of jettison their starting second baseman without a real replacement. Now, granted, Yomer Sanchez was a waiver claim himself. He's a, a gold glove winner two years ago with the White Sox, but he was somebody who only played, I think, eight or nine major league games last year. He was a guy who's been bouncing around, and he hit 190 this spring without a homer. So it wasn't exactly tearing it up, but because of the lack of replacement, everyone just kind of assumed that he was the second baseman the Orioles would head north with, and last-minute roster decision, they they did not. So now they have they have two utility types who profile as his main replacement. That's Pat Vileka and, and Ramon Urias. There's still a chance that they add another you know, second base candidate kind of in the vein of a Severino or a Plutko this week. But as of now, that's the that's the alignment they're going into the season with. I guess one of the, the surprising things for me about Baltimore's offseason was that, you know, it's not unusual for us to see teams that are in the sort of firmly in the midst of their rebuild be uh, pretty transactional, right? So they cycle through, you know, veterans and post high prospect guys. And they're, you know, they're trying to see either who might be a, a reasonable and useful addition to the team as it's starting to get good and who might also just be, you know, trade bait later on in the summer. And it didn't seem like Baltimore was as heavily transactional in that way as I might have expected them to be. So this, this question might be putting the cart before the horse a little bit, but where, where did they see themselves in their rebuild? And how far away did they judge themselves to be from being like, we don't even have to say a playoff team necessarily, but but a team on the edge of contention that might really start earnestly thinking about adding in free agency and looking ahead to uh, to brighter times. So I think the best way to answer that is by saying that this year is going to be big for them in kind of determining where they are in that timeline. I think they came in, when I say they, I mean the new front office of Michael Elias and Sigma Dell and this whole rebuild crew, they came in with about a four or five year plan to build back into contention, knowing that they were inheriting a kind of a bigger project than some of these other rebuilding clubs have had in, in recent years, um, kind of akin to the famous Astros rebuild from last decade. However, the, the pandemic kind of threw a wrench into that. The most important thing that for the, for the Orioles last year was how the pandemic cut into the development of their top prospects, most notably Adley Rutschman. But there were others, Grayson Rodriguez, D.L. Hall, young players like Gunnar Henderson. Uh, you know, these are these are players, the Orioles don't know what, what last year did to their development and how it affected their timeline in that way. And so what I think you saw this offseason was a team, you know, very much kind of in tread water mode. And, and the reason they weren't as transactional as one might um, anticipate them being was because, to be fair, they were very transactional during the regular season. They turned over, but between the draft and trades, uh, they turned over half of their top 30 prospect list per pipeline that we, that we were, the way we ranked them here. Right. Were, there was a slew of trades. I mean, a, a, anyone with any kind of service time was traded over the last few years, and especially last year, given the shortened season, Richard Blyer, Michael Givens, um, Tom, they even got two prospects for Tommy Malone. They traded Jose Iglesias this winter, and they were able to get a prospect for Alex Cobb by eating some salary in a trade with the Angels, which I don't think a lot of people anticipated them being able to do, given the fact that Cobb has been really injury-prone and really not that good when he has pitched. 
uh, and he was quite expensive. So they've been transactional in the sense if you kind of kind of zoom out and look look uh, broadly. Uh, this is a, a roster, not only a 40-man roster, but also a, a farm system that's turned over significantly in the last two, three years. I think Trey Mancini and Chris Davis might be the only players still on the team from the first time we spoke in the spring of 2019. And so they are in a phase of this rebuild where they knew they were going to turn the whole thing over. They just didn't know how many times they would have to. And we're at the point now where it's, we're almost at a full, one, you know, a turnover once around. I think the question is how many times are they going to have to do it again? And a lot of it is going to be based on how much development those prospects, especially the ones that they really care about, lost last year and how much they can make up not only this summer, but in the summers to come. Well, if you're looking for bright spots on this Orioles roster, you just named one of them, and that is Trey Mancini, who is back and is healthy enough to play baseball again, and that is something that everyone can celebrate. So how has he looked? How has he been? And how has he felt about being back out there? Well, physically, he's looked he's looked remarkable. Just a, a shameless plug here. I, I have a big feature on Trey Mancini's kind of year away from the field that just ran um, this week on MLB.com. And it details the real the real struggle that he went through in the last calendar year. It had been almost exactly a year to the day um, in early March from when he got, when he had his, his colonoscopy and it revealed a malignant tumor. The stage three colon cancer diagnosis came a few weeks later. And then almost exactly a year from then, he made his spring debut this year against the Pirates in the Orioles' Grapefruit League debut. And and he he was without restriction all spring. He passed every hurdle. He played in back-to-back days. He hit about 340. He hit a few homers. And he has touched so many people with not only his story of perseverance and resiliency, but also with his willingness to speak about that story and to tell it. He has really taken the initiative and, and, and come out of this with a goal of trying to, to help people and to to really champion for early colon cancer screening and to be a spokesperson for, for the awareness of that disease. And, and that's allowed him to just have this incredibly positive mindset. He was on the Today Show earlier today on NBC. So it's, it's a story that's kind of bigger than baseball and it's, it's getting national. He, he, he's getting a national audience with it. And I think on opening day, that's only going to grow. But really from a baseball standpoint, he he looks like the old Trey Mancini. He looks like he looks like he never left, really, which is kind of remarkable given the physical toll that chemotherapy puts the body through, and um, really the the emotional toll on top of that that cancer brings, and also uh, what the pandemic brought. I mean, he had to go through this whole ordeal uh, during 2020, which was already such a difficult year for so many people. And I think. He, I mean, he, he talks about this in the piece, and he said it multiple times. When he first was diagnosed, he didn't know if he would ever play baseball again. I think that's pretty fair. And then throughout the process, he kind of went through it with his health as the number one priority. And the second priority, once he was healthy, was to get back to the field. And so he completed six months of chemotherapy treatments. He was cleared to resume baseball activity again in October. He moved to Nashville, where he owns a home. Um, and worked out at a place called Chadwick's, which has become kind of a hotbed for for big league talent in the winter in recent years. Stephen Matz, the Tigers outfielder Christian Stewart, Logan Forsythe, a lot of other guys train there. It's kind of adjacent to, to Vanderbilt campus. And uh, he was back swinging in the cage by November. He reported to spring training 
about a month early. He was one of the first Orioles to get down to Sarasota, and he played in their first game. And he has been, you know, without restriction, clearing every hurdle ever since. So there's been, there hasn't been a setback. There's only really been, you know, positive things to come from his story. Now, I think the question is, you know, can he be the player that he was in 2019 again? And if he can, then that's a really big boost for this Orioles team that's going to struggle. But that has kind of an exciting middle of the order, um, especially with Trey Mancini in it. And so I think if, if that happens, it's kind of just icing on the cake. And, you know, it's, it's also, it helps the Orioles re- rebuilding plans. I know nobody wants to talk about that at this point, but Trey Mancini could easily become a, uh, become a trade candidate down the line, especially if he returns to the kind of production that he was able to provide before his illness. Well, this isn't quite as feel-good a story, but I think one of the other guys on this roster who is pretty watchable is John Means. And he had he's had an interesting 2019 and 2020. He was obviously, I think, second in second place for Rookie of the Year in 2019, and he was worth three war. He had uh, worse peripherals than his ERA would suggest, and then that kind of flipped last year, right, where he had you know, like an XERA around three, although his FIP was pretty brutal. I know he was throwing the ball harder. He was throwing his curveball more. What do you expect from Means this year? And what kind of pitcher do you expect him to ultimately settle into being? I think I think you can expect something in the middle. I don't think anyone, not even John Means, expected John Means to pitch the way John Means did in 2019. And I think that he pitched worse than his stuff would have indicated in 2020 in a lot of ways. There was there wasn't a single pitcher who increased their fastball velocity from 2019 to 2020. So a single starting pitcher, excuse me, in all in all of Major League Baseball than John Means. Um, this was a guy who two years ago, before he made the Orioles opening day roster in surprise fashion, was an organizational lefty, threw about 88 to 91 with the fastball, and he had a changeup was his only real other plus or passable pitch. It wasn't even plus. Didn't really have a, a distinct breaking ball to speak of. Now John Means is throwing 96 miles an hour with elite spin, and he has the changeup, and he has two distinct breaking balls: a curveball and a slider um, that he can use uh, against left-handed hitters. And he, he's just a different pitcher. He's just transformed. Now he's probably not the ace that the Orioles need him to be, but he's definitely not the kind of long shot non-prospect that he was two years ago when he burst on the scene. So I think he is going to be a good above average starting pitcher, especially if you consider ballpark factors, team factor, and if some of his results get a little more favorable. He's a fly ball pitcher in a bad fly ball park. Um, He gave up quite a few cheap homers last year. I think Mike Petriello had this great piece on on MLB.com about why John Means is so interesting. And a big part of it was that he gave up a lot of homers, but maybe four or five of them wouldn't have been homers in other parks and he only got 10 starts. So maybe during a full season that evens out. The results were a little skewed last year. He also had some arm issues. He also dealt with the death of his father in the middle of the season and kind of had to be away from the team for a little while. So it was a bit of a disjointed year for Means. And I don't think 2020 was really reflective of the strides he made as a pitcher or necessarily the results that you can expect from him at this point in his career. So I think, again, 2021 is going to be a big indicator in this regard. And the Orioles are, are expecting a lot from him. Uh, like we talked about earlier, there's a, there's a real need for innings. There's a real need for stability on this pitching staff. And John Means is the graybeard of it now. And so he's going to be asked to get, to get deep into games as much as possible. 
and he's going to be asked to be, you know, the pitcher he was in the first half of 2019 when he was a surprise all-star and on his way to a runner-up uh, for the Rookie of the Year award. I want to ask about another player you recently wrote a feature on who has also gotten a lot of attention, perhaps somewhat surprisingly. Can you tell us about the international celebrity of Anthony Santander? <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so that that was a fun thing to kind of look back on. It, it was it was funny when it happened, and then I remember. I, I guess I guess it, it, you know it, when you're on a beat, it's kind of like it's it's hard to zoom out sometimes and and realize what the rest of the baseball world is noticing compared to what you're noticing. And so this was a big thing in Orioles land like two years ago. There was a random August game against the Blue Jays. This was, I think, the the Orioles were on their way to 108 losses, and it was about to be the dog days of August. And Anthony Santander had really just started playing every day. This is a former Rule 5 pick who had been injured uh, and lost some time and up and down. And the Orioles were in this really really early phase of their rebuild where they were they were trying to evaluate what they had and anthony santander came up and started hitting really well next thing you know he was playing every day in left field and there was an august day it was a sunday it was an afternoon game and he was playing left field and there were i believe sixteen thousand people at camden yard so not a very big crowd but four thousand of them so about a quarter of them were these scouts from from britain you know the, the the scouts in Britain are kind of like the Boy Scouts of America here, so it's a youth organization. Uh, so a lot of kids and their volunteer adults. A lot of them were parents uh, who were on this trip. They were visiting from the UK. They had recently attended some national uh, scouting convention in West Virginia, and they came through Baltimore. And most of them were attending their first baseball game of their lives, and they just became completely enamored with Anthony Santander in left field cheering him wildly whenever he would make routine plays and just <laughs> and interacting with him in a way that most fans don't you know i think part of it was a lot of these kids were watching baseball for the first time and didn't realize a lot of the plays were routine a lot of it was the reaction that santander gave back to them after they started cheering him on so we started throwing them baseballs and souvenirs and with every play he made as the game went on the crowd just got louder and louder and louder and louder and they were and it became this thing that everybody noticed. And the PA announcer put the, you know, called them the Anthony Santander, the official fan club, and they put it on the scoreboard. And it became a, a nice kind of random feel-good story for a day or so. And then it really helped grow this this online blossoming community of baseball fans in Britain to where it's again, it's not it's not a popular it's not popular by like the definition of the word. You wouldn't say that, but but there is a small like cultish following in Britain for baseball fans and it is growing. And a lot of them are Orioles fans. And and the weird thing is, this is kind of a new phenomenon and the Orioles haven't really been good in a while now. And so a lot of it is due to this Anthony Santander game. And he's kept in touch with fans on, on social media. He's done question and answer sessions with them on Instagram um, and he'll interact with them and he's, they're his biggest fan club. Just it's just kind of the way it worked out. And so, you know, baseball has been trying to improve its international footprint and expand the game and grow the game internationally. That was the same year that the London series debuted between the the Red Sox and Yankees. And if you would if you were to poll most baseball fans living in Britain, they would probably say their favorite player is Mike Trout or Aaron Judge. You know, the, the superstars are transferable. 
But a lot of them will also say Anthony Santander. And if you polled most baseball fans in America, most of them probably wouldn't say that. So that's why it's interesting. And it was just a kind of a fun, quirky thing to look back on this spring now that it's been about two years. And it's kind of really helped galvanize this, um, this online community and keep them engaged, um, not only with the game, but with a team that's, that's been kind of tough to watch for a lot of people for a while now. You've given me such a, a wonderful segue into my next question, which is that MLB isn't the only organization trying to grow its international presence. I know the Orioles themselves are in the process of opening an academy in the Dominican Republic. They were famously for a long time just not present in the international amateur market. And I'm curious what you can tell us about how their international department has developed since the regime turned over and kind of what their hopes and expectations are there going forward. So it's it's transformed immensely. Maybe transformed isn't even the right word because there really wasn't an infrastructure or a department in, <laughs> in place. Yeah. And so one of Mike Elias's big initiatives when he came in, and it's really, if, if you think about it, in terms of a job interview, it's kind of a layup for Mike Elias to say this. I'm, I'm not sure if any of the other candidates for the job outlined, you know, grow the international department. That's what every team has been doing forever now. It's not, it's not like, this is a new concept, you know, for like, like you mentioned, for years, the Orioles were dormant in Latin America, and they were the only team that was. And so Michael Elias came in with a big initiative to not only grow that department, but to make them players in that market. And he came in and was very, I think, realistic about the challenges of doing so, especially when so many other teams have already have these relationships and these facilities and these connections kind of ingrained already in that market. So he said, look, it's going to take a few years, but this is going to be an area of, em of emphasis for us in a way that it never was before. And one of his first hires was of Kobe Perez, who was the international scouting director for the Indians for quite a long time. And the Indians are kind of a model, small to mid-market franchise for developing and cultivating Latin American talent and then turning a lot of that talent into stars at the big league level. And so Elias hired Kobe Perez and under Perez, the department has really grown. Uh, their scouting departments more than more than quadrupled. They signed their first two seven figure bonus amateurs. That was this past January. So this past signing period was the biggest international signing period in Orioles history. They spent over six million dollars in the international market, including $1.3 million bonuses for two players, uh, catcher, switching catcher Samuel Basayo from the from the Dominican Republic and, and an athletic 16-year-old uh, shortstop named Michael Hernandez from Venezuela. And this class was really the headliner and the culmination of kind of what Elias came in and you know this vision that he, he laid out for the team when, when he came in, understanding that like with so many things, with this organization from international scouting to analytics, Elias came in really with the goal of first getting them up to speed with the rest of the league. And I think this year he could finally properly say that in terms of the international initiative. Because um, the first year they had a lot of bonus money, but there wasn't really that much time to spend it. And so they spent a lot of it on lower level kind of flyer prospects. And the class after that, they had a few $450,000 bonus babies, which was big for the organization, but not necessarily big when you zoom out and you look at what other teams are doing in Latin America. But this year with the two seven-figure bonus bonus uh, signings, was it was really something that the Orioles could hang their hat on and kind of point to and say, look, this is we may be cutting payroll at the big league level. We may It may seem like we're not trying to add 
but here is where we are reinvesting some of that money and we're also reinvesting reinvesting it in a brand new training academy that was modeled after the cleveland indians academy and it's actually going to be right next door and we can use this as a recruiting tool and we are finally going to be a, a destination for young amateur players in latin america uh, in a way that we weren't for decades and that's huge that's huge because especially when um, you're competing with teams like the yankees and the red sox who are exceptional in that market and who throw a ton of money at it and develop superstars from it so um, i would say it's come a very 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 long way in two years and it's probably only about half halfway to where they want it to be but it's it's at the point now where it, it's at a respectable level and the infrastructure is in place for it to grow and to kind of blossom into the department that they want it to be so one other bright spot last year, you know, this lineup is sort of littered with some veterans who uh, maybe are, are just kind of keeping the seat warm. But then there's Ryan Mountcastle, who came up last year and was very impressive, although fell into that bucket of players who had maybe an even more impressive debut than was expected because they had some small sample BABIP working in their favor. But obviously he came in with fairly high expectations anyway. So how close was that to what they actually think he can be? Yeah, Mountcastle is an interesting case because he's a guy that the Orioles, were they are really excited about. Um, but he's also a guy that I think it's fair to say exceeded some of the expectations for him, especially early in that uh, very small 34, 35 game sample that he had down the stretch last year where he was extremely productive and much more selective at the plate than we had heard he would be, and also much better, much more competent defensively in left field than than was his reputation. And so there are some interesting underlining factors to Mountcastle's performance last year that uh, may indicate a regression possibility. Uh, for example, the big thing with Mountcastle when he was in the minors was that he didn't walk enough, um, he wasn't selective enough, but he can hit. And um, when he came up to the big leagues, he hit. Um, and he also walked a little bit, which surprised a lot of people. And he got really good marks for his plate discipline and his swing decisions. And the results were really good. But he was still kind of an extremely free swinger in a way that you don't necessarily see a lot of patient hitters behave. I believe his his swing rates, both in and out of the zone, were among the highest in Major League Baseball with among hitters with the minimum amount of plate appearances that he had. And his chase rate was also top five. So this is a, a young hitter, a kind of undisciplined hitter, a free, but a free swinging hitter and a guy who can really do damage when he connects. But some of the maturity at the plate stuff that he might have gotten credit for last year, you know, I, I wonder if that stuff doesn't even out a little bit, not only in a second run through the league, but also in a larger 162 game sample. That said, I still think he's a, an AL Rookie of the Year candidate because he's got big power and, and the hit ability is real. So this is a guy, if he can hold his own in left field, I think, which is still a question mark, even though he was better than, than advertised there last last year. This spring, it was kind of uneven for him out there, and he struggled at times. And so if he can hold his own in left field and if he can kind of make some strides from a swing decision standpoint at the plate... Uh, he's a guy who can have a really good year and who can be kind of a, a cornerstone piece that the Orioles might be able to build around. And uh, I think more broadly, he's part of what is frankly a, a pretty exciting outfield 
situation for a team that I don't think a lot of people expect to have a really good outfield. Um, with Malcastle in left, Santander in right, and the combination of Cedric Mullins and Austin Hayes in center field, who are both pretty dynamic defenders. Uh, Mullins brings a speed element that the Orioles really don't have anywhere else. And it's kind of, he brings a small ball kind of feel that is kind of dying around the game. And Austin Hayes, who is a versatile, kind of explosive, dynamic outfielder when he's healthy, if he could stay on the field, they have a pretty interesting crop of young outfielders that at this point, I think, is what you can look at if you're looking at something besides the farm system and you can point to as something that says, hey, they've made progress in this area on the field during this rebuild and there may be some building blocks emerging. Now, the question is, do those players emerge into mainstays or do they emerge and develop into trade chips? And, and, and what, what part of the rebuild, you know, are they, what are, are they like the, you know, the, the pieces for? I think this year goes a long way towards, towards answering that question. And I think Mountcastle is a guy who you might be able to see put up pretty big numbers, especially for a young player, given the ballpark that he's in. Uh, giving his ability to really crush mistakes, especially fastballs. So the prior Orioles regime was not famous for its pitcher development. That's probably a nice way of putting this question. And I know that it was a point of emphasis as Elias and crew came in. And I'm curious how you've seen the sort of player development on the pitching side evolve in the last two years, year and a half. I know that 2020 probably makes that question a little bit harder to answer just given the nature of the season. But what sort of changes are they implementing? And are you seeing them start to bear fruit in some of their prospects? So the first thing you saw right away was the use of technology, The not only the tilt towards analytics, but the full dive into analytics from an organization that kind of avoided that kind of thing uh, before this new regime. So the first, first spring training with Mike Elias and Chris Holt, who is now the pitching coach, but he was then the minor league coordinator of pitching, you saw edutronic cameras lined up in the bullpen, you saw uh, Rapsodo machines, you saw... Um, all this information being collected and utilized for the first time really in franchise history in a profound way. So again, just like with the international market stuff and with some of the behind the scenes analytics, you know, the last two years were in a lot of ways spent for the Orioles kind of catching up with the rest of the league and becoming a place and like shedding this reputation as a place that doesn't lean into these ideas and into these modern pitching philosophies and into these tools and and into data. So flash forward to two and a half years, they now are kind of are known a little bit as more of a progressive pitching system in that way. I mean, it obviously extends over to the offensive side too, but the kind of more famous tools and and the more clearer, easier to see success stories happen on the pitching side. John Means is a big example of this. He's a guy who had to go and look for his own pitching lab in the off season of 2018, 2019, because he came at that point, the organization didn't provide these tools. And so he found one on his own in St. Louis and he made, you know, he, he became the pitcher that he is now. He, he added three or four mile, uh, miles per hour on his fastball. He developed the second breaking ball. He did all that kind of stuff on his own. Now, when pitchers come in to this organization, they, you know, they come into it kind of knowing they're going to get that kind of uh, training and development in-house. So that's a major difference. Now, in terms of bearing fruit, I think, again, this year will be quite telling because it's the first year where 
there's a real wave of pitching prospects that is about to arrive. And well, either they've arrived or they're about to arrive. And I mean, this first wave of Dean Kramer, Keegan Aiken, uh, Zach Lowther, Michael Bauman, Alexander Wells, guys who were in the most, for the most part, were in the organization before the new regime came in and has have since benefited from this shift in pitching development philosophy. So the first year that Elias and Holt came in and they re- and they completely revolutionized the the pitching philosophy throughout the system. The Double A team led all of the minor leagues in strikeouts, and they 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 saw their walks like plummet. Okay, and you saw this throughout the organization. Every single level improved, and now you're seeing a lot of those pitchers reach the big leagues. And so the question is, what have they become? What have they developed into? So it's you know it's kind of a question that's not answerable yet. But this year, Dean Kramer's starting in the rotation. Keegan Aiken didn't make the team, but he'll be in the rotation before long. Michael Bauman, Zach Lowther, Alexander Wells, these are all guys who are top 20 prospects in the organization. Uh, they were all added to the 40-man this year. They're all going to pitch this year. They're all here. So these aren't the top, top, top-level prospects, like a Grayson Rodriguez and a D.L. Hall, but they are the type, the, the level of prospect where if you're a good pitcher, and you come into contact with some really good development, then you could become a really good pitcher. And so I think we're either going to see the this shift in philosophy bear fruit or not in a big way this year. And it's not only about how they face at the big how that how those guys fare at the big league level this year, but it's also what kind of pitchers they become long term and whether or not they kind of assert themselves as. Uh, building blocks for this rebuild. It's really going to take some time to get used to the whole Michael Bauman being a big leaguer <laughs> and not just a, a friend and a coworker, but I'll get there eventually. And he will too, I'm sure. So I did want to ask about the back of the bullpen because it looked like that was maybe Hunter Harvey's job to lose. And then he did lose it, at least temporarily, because he got hurt, hurt his oblique, is out for a while. And so now that spot seems to be taken by Cesar Valdez, who is a 36-year-old signed out of the Mexican League last year who pitched well for Baltimore last season. So tell us the Cesar Valdez story, and then is there still a chance for Harvey to reclaim that spot at some point this season? Cesar Valdez is is a great story. He um, is a 35-year-old journeyman. He hadn't pitched in the big league since 2017. He pitched 11 games for the A's and Blue Jays, and before that he hadn't been in the big leagues since 2010. Before he was called up by the Orioles last year, they signed him out of the Mexican League in the winter. He was an ace in the Mexican League, and this is a guy who doesn't throw very hard at all. So Cesar Valdez is signed in, think of this, he signed, he signed. I, I, I'm not exactly sure, sometime before 2010, then he makes the big leagues with the with, with the Diamondbacks. It's seven years before he's in the big leagues again. He played in China, played in Mexico, he played in Venezuela, he played in the Dominican Republic. He played everywhere. <laughs> he played everywhere. And then he gets 11 games in the big leagues in 2017, and he kind of falls off the map again. He emerges as this star in the Mexican League, and the Orioles take a flyer on him. This is a guy who does not – his fastball's in the mid, mid-80s. He throws his changeup, which they call the dead fish. It was 83% of the time last year, according to StatCast. It moves, it has more horizontal, I'm sorry, ver- it has more vertical movement than almost any other changeup in baseball. And he can throw it anywhere from 
76 miles an hour to 85 miles an hour. Kurt's got this huge range and speed, and he throws it from all these different arm angles, and nobody can hit him last year. He allowed two runs and nine appearances, and he had a few like multi-inning saves. He pitched in middle relief. He pitched in long relief. He pitched in the ninth inning. He was a revelation. And, you know, he's a guy who you watch pitch, and the stuff doesn't really match up to whoever's starting for the Yankees that day or doesn't really match up to uh, who's coming out of the pen uh, for the Rays, you know, that day. And uh, he was able to get outs. And the Orioles really loved him for it. And he was he was assured a spot on this roster the entire spring. It's a, it'll be the first opening day roster he makes in his career. But even though he he ended the year as the closer last year, I think uh, he's probably more suited in a kind of a middle relief, long relief role uh, this year, simply because he has such a rubber arm and the Orioles are going to need innings um, so badly that they are not going to be in a position to waste Cesar Valdez in one inning stints or with one inning stints. And so in that vein, it looks like the de facto closer at this point is probably hard-throwing lefty Tanner Scott, who had a really good year in 2020. Before that, he was a guy who always had huge stuff, but he had no idea where it was going. A lot of walks, a lot of wild pitches, almost no command to speak of. And last year, he really put it together in a small sample. So I think one of the bigger questions for the Orioles this year is, was that breakout real? And can Tanner Scott be the impact back-end reliever that they know that he could be if he was if he's able to harness his stuff? And, you know, it's funny, Brandon Hyde has not named a closer since he became the Orioles manager, not once. And so he's been closer by committee the entire time. A lot of that is personnel driven. A lot of that is there isn't that much use for a closer on such a bad team. And a lot of that also is that a lot of times with this team, the bigger outs, the biggest outs of the night come in the sixth or the seventh or sometimes even the fifth. And so saving your best pitchers for the ninth has never really been something that uh, was a priority for this this team in the last three years or so. And that'll be the case this year, too. And so while Tanner Scott might get some saves, I think Paul Fry might close some games. I think Sean Armstrong might close some games. I think if Cole Sulser makes the team, there's one more bullpen spot that's kind of uh, up in the air. I think he might possibly get some save opportunities. And Cesar Valdez might as well. But Cesar Valdez might also come in in the fifth inning three days later. And so that's why he's a bit of an unconventional uh, closer. So it's, it's, it's a fluid situation in the back end of the bullpen with the Orioles. The whole unit is very fluid. But he is definitely, <laughs> he's, he's definitely the, uh, the biggest attraction back there, I'd say, just because of his story and because of his personality and because of his unique arsenal of pitches. And is there a timeline for Harvey or is that just he's on the 60 man and we'll see? Well, he, he suffered a pretty serious oblique injury a few weeks ago and obliques are notoriously difficult to, to kind of predict. And they always tend to tend to keep players out longer than they want or they anticipated. And it's, that's especially true for kind of max effort all out relief pitchers, you know, who have to kind of throw their side 110% into every pitch that they throw. So he'll be, he's on the 60 day DL. He's out to at least the end of May. And then there'll probably be some, uh, you know, throwing progression that happens around that time or shortly after. I think given his injury history, given how careful the Orioles have been with Hunter Harvey, even when he has been healthy in the past two years, I think 
the most, con, you know, the most realistic estimate is probably sometime around the all-star break. And if it happens before that, I think the Orioles and Hunter Harvey would be pleased. can't believe that we have made the Baltimore fans listening to this go this long without having you talk about Adley Rutschman. He spent last year at the alt site. You've talked a little bit about how 2020 has, you know, complicated his trajectory, I would say. How did he look last year, albeit in kind of an unusual setting? And what do you what do you expect his progression through the minors to look like this year? Well, I think it was telling that Adley Rutschman got such a long look this year in spring training. He was invited to Major League Camp last year, but really didn't play very much. And this year, they, they kept bringing him back for, for starts and for starts behind the plate and for starts at DH uh, up until the last week of spring. And a lot of that was a function of the fact that he didn't play very much last year. And this is a guy that is a, was a generational prospect coming out of the draft, um, signed a record bonus as a number one pick, and he's only played 37 games in the past two years of pro ball. So I think... At the time of his selection, it was anticipated that he could probably debut in the big leagues by the end of 2021. And the, pand- the pandemic definitely complicated that timeline. At this point, he's probably going to start the season at AA. And the Orioles, the Orioles really have no reason to rush him, given their where they stand in the competitive timeline. And, right. and, and just given you know how little he's played. And you see stories from across the league of guys like Bobby Witt Jr. and and um, and Andrew Vaughn turning heads in Royals and White Sox camp. And these are teams that I know the White Sox are planning to contend. People might not think the Royals are, but, but the Royals are going to be better than, than people think. And they have a little more urgency in their, in their trajectories right now than the Orioles do. So I, I don't think he's going to debut this year, talking about Adley Rutschman again. I think he's going to spend quite a bit of time at double-A, and if he performs really well at that level, maybe a late season bump to AAA uh, is reasonable and expected. But Michael Elias has been actually historically pretty methodical with not only prospects that he's drafted, but also prospects that he's inherited from the past regime. And they, at this point, there really just is no reason for the Orioles to rush these guys from a competitive standpoint and from a, a service time perspective. And so, uh, look, all reports are that on Adley Rutschman from the alternate site were glowing. There wasn't a lot of ways to actually see what was going on there, obviously. Right. <laughs> so you know you have to kind of take those with a grain of salt. But and he, he you know he he held his own this spring. Also, he competed, and by the end of the spring, he was getting some hits and and re- reaching base at a decent clip. And so I, I don't think anything has changed from an expectation standpoint long term. But I do think the timeline on on him has been pushed back a little, and it's the, it's really the one clear kind of result from the pandemic that you that you can look at this team and kind of point to because if Adley Rushman was going to debut at the end of 2021 by the time he was like when he was drafted if that was the forecast and he doesn't get there till September 2022 then that's a sizable difference in the timeline of the rebuild. So we always end by asking for a win total prediction as you no doubt recall so can you tell us how many games the Orioles will win in 2021? You always catch me off guard with it. So I actually prepared this year. And they exceeded my expectations a little bit last year. I think the year before I was pretty close to spot on, though. This year I'm saying 51 wins. Mm -hmm. So I think they'll lose 111 games. Okay. 
Well, we can't accuse you of being over-optimistic, which <laughs> is the case with some of our guests, I'd say. So thank you for your honesty. Will we see Mickey Janice at some point with her Mickey Janice? Because I was hoping that he would somehow make this team when he went viral with his knuckleballs during spring training. And I've been rooting for him for a while because we are just out of knuckleballers. And I figured Baltimore seemed like a likely place. They have a history of trying out knuckleballers and not exactly a deep staff. So is there still hope that he'll be up at some point this season? I don't know if you'll see Mickey Janice in the big leagues, but I do think you'll see the Orioles break their franchise record for the amount of pitchers used in a season. <laughs> I, I, I'm dead serious. Given the workload constraints, given given the depth uh, issues that they have, given uh, the uncertainty both in the rotation and the bullpen, I think you'll see them use a franchise record number of pitchers this year, which would seem to bode well for Mickey Janice's chances of being in the big leagues. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for giving me that much, at least. it's. Uh, I mean, when Matt Harvey is your number two starter, which, uh, as you said, was not exactly expected, and then it gets dicier from there, <laughs> you have to look at that as a, an opportunity if you're someone who's trying to make a big league debut. So I hope that happens for him at some point this season. Not that I'm rooting against Harvey, because uh, a Harvey comeback would be fun too. I just... Don't know if I believe in it at this stage. And that word gets thrown around a lot in Orioles land these days. It's it's all about opportunity. Yes. <laughs> all right. Well, you can find Joe on Twitter at Joe Trez, T-R-E-Z-Z. And you can find him writing at MLB.com. We will link to some of the pieces that he cited and talked about today. And we thank you for the third year in a row for helping us bring this thing home. Ben, Meg, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Have a great season. Next time, we'll talk to you maybe in the middle of the preview. Who knows? <laughs> we can we can hope. Maybe it'll be uh, third to last, at least. We'll build on this. Now that I think about it, the closer we talk to opening day, the more exciting everything is, right? So th- th- this, is, <laughs> this is the most exciting because it's that's, the closest uh, to opening day. That's a positive spin to put on it. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much, Joe. Thank you. That will do it for today and for the season preview series. I've been waiting some time to say that. Thanks to everyone for listening along. Also, a couple of quick plugs for articles I've written this week. If you're wondering about the new supposedly deader ball that MLB is rolling out, I took a look at this with Rob Arthur at The Ringer. It's always tough to tell based on spring training stats how the ball will behave because in spring training, teams use the new ball and also the old ball. It's sort of a blend. But based on what we can tell, there do not seem to be any strong signs that the ball will not be juiced this season. In fact, the rate of home runs on contact this spring was higher than in any previous spring training dating back to 2006. So it seems like the ball will still be flying fairly well. Just from talking to people in front offices, it seems like there's a lot of skepticism that the ball is effectively dejuiced. So I'll link to that article, and I will also link to the one that Pedro mentioned earlier when he was talking about my line about Craig Goldstein. That was in an article I wrote about the Tom Brenneman meme, the drive into deep left field by Castellanos pasta. I did a deep dive into how that came about and why it's still so popular online. So that was a fun one for me. Maybe you'd enjoy it too. We'll link to that on the show page as well. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Connor Turner, Andrew Kicklighter, Ben Langager, Nathan Barker, and Will Peckenham. 
thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg coming via email at podcastfangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance throughout these long episodes and sometimes with far from ideal recording setups and background noise. Dylan has been a trooper about that. We wish you a happy opening day and we will be back probably the day after opening day to discuss how it all went down. The off season is over. We made it together. Talk to you soon. And some live for today. And around us the windows of wonder were unshuttered.